and welcome back to the B Team Bible Study Podcast, where we read a chunk from the Bible, this season from the book of Acts, and I'll share some insights and ahas I had during my research. Then we cap it off with an application question for your next dinner party. You know, deep sharing, secret sin kind of stuff. We're following a reading plan from Memorial Drive Presbyterian Church in Houston, Texas. Our text is lengthy today, so I'm going to cut the small talk and dive right in. are in Acts chapter 9, picking up in verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Uh, P.S. Is that a little 12 rules for life reference there, Luke? Anyway, immediately he rose and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Now down the street in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas or gazelle. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and, sh- and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed the prayer of his life. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and he raised her up. And he said, make your bed, woman. No, I'm just kidding. He didn't say that. He called all the saints and widows together and he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a Tanner. After last week's big drama with Saul, chapter 9 concludes by shifting the story back to Peter. Acts is now unfolding like one of those TV dramas that follows a different thread on several unique but like intersecting familial storylines. And this chapter concludes with a little bit of a cliffhanger, actually. Perhaps a literary device to perk up listeners' ears with some foreshadowing. See, for Peter to stay at a tanner's house was a bit questionable for a good Jew. Tanners dealt with the hides of dead animals, rendering them ritually unclean for temple gatherings and worship. So for Peter to be staying under his roof might have given him some pause, but this guy was a brother in Christ after all, and Peter wasn't spending much time at the temple these days. So anyway, we get to keep reading in chapter 10. So let's see how this little foreshadowing technique plays out. Reading now from Acts chapter 10. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer, Cornelius, a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a godly man, deeply reverent, as was his entire household. He gave generously to charity and was a man of prayer. While wide awake, one afternoon, he had a vision. It was about three o'clock, one of the traditional Jewish times of prayer. And in his vision, he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror terror. What do you want, sir? He asked the angel. And the angel replied, your prayers and charities have not gone unnoticed by God. Now send some men to Joppa to find a man named Simon Peter, 
who is staying with Simon the Tanner down by the shore and ask him to come and visit you. As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a godly soldier, one of his personal bodyguards, and he told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. The next day, as they were nearing the city, Peter went up on the flat roof of his house to pray. It was noon and he was hungry, but while lunch was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open and a great canvas sheet suspended by its four corners settled to the ground. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, snakes and birds forbidden for the Jews to, for food. Then a voice said to him, go kill and eat any of them you wish. Never, Lord, Peter declared. I have never in all my life eaten such creatures, for they are forbidden by our Jewish laws. But the voice spoke again. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. Or as the NIV says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Or the New American Standard Version of the Bible, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. All right, pause here for just a second. See, there were certain foods forbidden by the Jewish law. These forbidden foods were considered unclean or unholy. Likewise, since this is sort of a metaphor, there were certain conditions that could render a person unclean or unholy. If you were part of God's assembly, this wasn't like a permanent identity thing, but more like a temporary state. You were temporarily unclean, so you could take actions defined in the law to become clean, uh, clean again undergo a ritual cleansing, wait the appointed time, etc. We'll talk a lot more about that in the commentary. All right, back to verse 16. The same vision was repeated three times. So I'm going to say that line again three times to give us a glimpse into Peter's experience. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Then the sheet was pulled up again to heaven. Peter was very perplexed. What could the vision mean? What was he supposed to do? Just then the doorbell rings. The men sent by Cornelius had found the house and were standing outside at the gate inquiring whether this was the place where Simon Peter was staying. Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, three men have come to you. Go down and meet them and go with them. All is well. I have sent them. So Peter went down probably a little dazed and confused, but he speaks up and says, hey, I'm, I'm over, over here. I'm the man you're looking for. Now, what is it you want? Then they told him about Cornelius, the Roman officer, a good and godly man, well thought of by the Jews and how an angel had instructed him to send for Peter to come and tell him what God wanted him to do. So Peter invited them in and lodged them overnight. The next day he went with them, accompanied by some other believers from Joppa. This is actually important because next week we'll meet these other believers again and their testimony of what they witnessed at the Romans' home will help Peter's cause. So they all arrived in Caesarea the following day and Cornelius was waiting for him and had called together his relatives and close friends to meet Peter. As Peter entered his home, Cornelius fell to the floor before him in worship, but Peter said, stand up, I too am just a man. So he got up and they talked together for a bit and then went in where the others were assembled. So guys, off the bat, Peter is going to acknowledge that this is a very strange circumstance indeed, that Peter is way off the beaten path in coming into a Roman's home. So in verse 28, Peter told them, you know it is against the Jewish laws for me to come into a Gentile home like this, but God has shown me in a vision that what I, that I should never call anyone unholy or unclean. So I came as soon as I was sent for. 
Now tell me what you want. Cornelius replied, four days ago, I was praying as usual at, the t- at this time in the afternoon, when suddenly a man was standing before me, clothed in a radiant robe. He told me, Cornelius, your prayers are heard and your charities have been noticed by God. Now send some men to Joppa and summon Simon Peter, who is staying at the home of Simon a Tanner down by the shore. So I sent for you at once, and you have done well to come to me so soon. Now here we are, waiting before the Lord, anxious to hear what he has told you to tell us. Dun, dun, dun. Total cliffhanger. Okay, so first, let's recap. There's a Roman guy named Cornelius who lives in Caesarea, the Roman capital of the Judean region where Pontius Pilate lived during the days of Jesus, about 30 miles from Joppa. Cornelius is not just any Roman, but a soldier, and in fact, a leader of soldiers. Roman soldiers were far better known for their brutality and extortion of the occupied lands they were stationed in, but not Cornelius. Did you notice how he was described like a couple of times? Devout, upright, a God-fearer, respected by the Jews, charitable. Fun fact, Jews considered almsgiving or charity a form of repentance, and we all know how critical repentance is to the Jewish and Christian faith experience. So God notices Cornelius. To be fair, God has always known and noticed Cornelius. Since before he was born, God has been making invitations to Cornelius, nurturing his faith, just as God does for each and every one of us. And in the perfect timing of God's economy, today, God would begin to reveal himself in a more obvious and specific way. As the God of all people, not just the Jews, through Jesus Christ, through a messenger, Peter. Cornelius heeds the message. He sends off to go get Peter. Meanwhile, God's revelation to Cornelius had a part two. God had to do something much more far-fetched than appear to a Roman. He had to prep the law-abiding, God-fearing Peter for a job that would require some kind of radical faith. So let's talk about that vision. Peter is hungry, like so hungry he nearly enters a trance. And in his prayer trance state, he has a vision. A sheet filled with wild animals is being let down before him, the hungriest man ever. And the voice says, here's lunch, Peter. Dig in. There's bacon. But Peter is all like, never, because there's all kinds of forbidden foods there, Lord. So he knows it's God speaking to him. But the voice speaks again. Trust me, all is well. You can eat all of them now. There's no more clean and unclean, profane and holy, for I have cleansed it all. Trust me in this. Three times the voice encourages Peter that it's okay, buddy. And then the vision evaporates and Peter is staring perplexed at the wall at the wall when the doorbell rings. Not even 48 hours later, Peter finds himself crossing the threshold of a Roman household for the first time in his life, defying the law, but following the God of the universe. To help us understand this story a little better, I want to ask and respond to three questions. First, what is this whole clean, holy, common, impure thing. Oh boy. The reason this podcast is like two days late is because I really wrestled over how to address this in so few word counts when this is probably one of the topics in Jewish theology that could fill a museum with volumes written about it. Okay. Big idea though, the 30,000 feet view. We do ourselves a huge favor when we accept that at the heart of the Jewish law, 
the Old Testament laws that we read about in Leviticus and Deuteronomy is the promise of human flourishing. The heart of the law is not strange ritual for strange ritual's sake, but a systematic, thoughtful approach to promote welfare, neighborliness, health, justice, and shalom. Also, I think it's really important that we distinguish that clean and unclean are not synonymous with good and bad. They aren't moral categories, but rather conditions or states. Still, it was arguably better to do what you could to remain clean. For when you were clean, you could attend worship, have sex, grab coffee with your favorite friend, do the neighborhood potluck thing. When you were unclean, you had to abstain from many social benefits. You therefore wanted to avoid defiling yourself by partaking of unclean foods and activities and getting sick. All of that rendered you unclean um, so far as you could control them. Um, But some things like menstruation are relatively unavoidable. Let's take an example. Dead animal carcasses were considered unclean by the law. Because vermin and communicable disease could be a real threat to an ancient community, a dead rat would be promptly and carefully dealt with by a Jewish household servant, a Jewish housewife, a Jewish husband. Encountering that animal would render him temporarily unclean. He had to self-quarantine for a period of time, something we all know a lot about right now. But we also know it's a value in keeping the rest of the community safe. After a time, he was clean again and he could go back to book club. Okay, second, why are certain animals unclean for eating? Because we all get the dead rat thing, right? That makes sense. But why would an animal who has a cloven hoof but does not chew their cud be considered unclean? Okay, again, there is some evidence that God, in his profound wisdom, gave his people some kind of superfood health code that was centuries ahead of scientific inquiry, that if they would just obey, they'd be spared all kinds of disease and health conditions, that the animals approved were healthier long-term. God forbids eating rats, for example. Good move, God. Good move. But there is actually a bigger principle at play. Beyond diet, beyond transmission of disease, the whole clean-unclean thing has at its heart the principle of wholeness or purity. When asked why the law is what it is, God's answer is sometimes, be holy for I am holy. Okay, that's a little dense, but what does that even mean? What is holy? Well, holy means set apart, separate, But in a way, it also means whole, W-H-O-L-E, uninjured, sound, healthy, complete. Someone with a skin disease with exposed wounds is considered unclean. Again, not because they are bad and not just because it's potentially transmission of disease, but because they are injured. The skin is broken. They aren't complete. When the skin heals, they are clean again. They are whole. Be holy as I am holy. Be uninjured, sound, healthy, complete. It's been suggested that some animals make the unclean list because they are something of an aberration. An insect with too many wings, for example, or a ocean creature meant to swim but actually has legs and crawls upon the ground. I'll be honest, this one is really hard for me to wrap my head around because, like, didn't you make that insect, God? Didn't you make that lobster to walk on the ground in the ocean? Why did you give it, quote-unquote, too many wings? We really do need somebody better than me on ancient Jewish scholarship, someone better read, to help explain that one. 
Which is why I started this commentary with the big picture 30,000 foot view, stating that we do ourselves a favor when we accept that at the heart of the law is a principle of pro-human flourishing. And sometimes, guys, I know that this goes without saying, but sometimes God's ways are just mysterious. But we also know that God is love. God has proven himself to be love in sending his son to create a way for us to have wholeness and healing with our creator, reconciliation, redemption, a new life, a new purpose. And so sometimes we accept God's way, despite it not being crystal clear to us. We do this all the time in our real lives anyway, like when prayers aren't answered the way we hoped, but we trust anyway. All right, third question. What did the vision mean? Well, it doesn't take a detective to figure this one out. Romans were considered unclean. They lived by a different cultural and moral code. They constantly violated God's law through their worship practices, their diet, their customs. I said clean and unclean were not synonymous with good and bad, but you know how people love to sort and rank themselves. Unclean people, even if through no fault of their own, became the untouchables. Unclean people became the butt of the joke. Unclean people became the enemy, the threat. Romans were the enemy, the threat. It's hard to overemphasize what a cosmic shift this was for Peter. For God, the one who authored, delivered, and enforced the law to do a new thing here. To, in effect, go against the law. All of this brings up something tricky, which is what do you do when the black and white words on the page of the Bible are contradicted by your Christian experience? Can you be a person who holds the Bible as true and authoritative, even when some of the black and white words, the things the Bible says to think and do, are no longer applicable? I think absolutely, yes, you can. And I I don't say that flippantly. I have a deep affection and appreciation and respect for the Bible. Obviously, I created a podcast to talk about it. It is definitely an authority in my life. But I also think you can try on ideas. Like, you can try following the Bible to the letter. For a hilarious, tender, and thought-provoking read, I encourage you to check out the book A Year of Biblical Womanhood by the late Rachel Held Evans. May she rest in peace. I pre-ordered this book and gobbled it up when it came out in 2012. I laughed out loud, I cried, and I learned so many things. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. So you can try that on, following the Bible to the letter. You can also try digging way deep into the evolution of ideas within the faith. Like, did the early church ever follow some of these commands that were written to the letter? What happened? How did reality match up with idealism? What was the social context in which it was written? How does this affect long-term understanding and application for different communities in different time periods? Like, for instance, even though the Old Testament at one point says God hates divorce, eventually, Even within the Old Testament, concessions were made for the reality that some marriages are terrible, some spouses are the worst, and there needs to be a way out in situations of abuse, infidelity, neglect, and so on. You might also try on the idea that you are a person who is learning, a person for whom change, even theological change, is permissible, maybe even advisable. Like, you might have learned something new while listening to this podcast that changes how you approach the Bible or its commands. And you'll probably change again, and again, and again. So, yeah, I think you can hold the Bible to be true and authoritative, knowing that there are certain sentences that, even though they say one thing, apparently quite clearly, you can actually live the opposite. Like, 
women can in fact speak in church despite a sentence that says otherwise. And women can wear jewelry and braids or cut their hair short. Funny how churches that hold that first statement about women as authoritative wiggle around the second one because I've seen a lot of glammed up ladies at conservative churches. The story of Peter's surprise at what God did in Cornelius was so significant it would be retold two more times in Acts. Luke would devote a significant portion of his precious scroll to telling this story three times. That tells you just a little bit of how radical it was. As we wrap up today, just one application question. How has your faith experience changed over time? Was there something you believed five years ago that you understand differently now? Or was there a practice that seemed essential or even abhorrent to you and now you think the opposite? What reasons do you attribute to these changes? Like for me, when I first became a believer, I put immense pressure on myself to have a daily quiet time. Years later, I still uphold that as a goal, as an ideal, but it has become not about checking the box to please some version of God who's got the checklist up in the sky and more of the awareness that the wholeness, the rest, the reinvigoration of purpose that I seek, I know is found in that time of prayer and meditation. I want to make it a habit as much as possible, but I'm a lot less hard on myself. If days slip by or if there's a season where my spirit is low and God and I have to get creative in how we engage with each other. I attribute these changes to a cultivating a lot more grace in my life and also just kind of more basically just having more stuff on my plate, like kids and a husband and a job and a house. So what about you? Gosh, I'd love to have that conversation with every single one of you. So if I see you soon, please bring it up. Even if you think the other people present will be bored to tears, I will be hanging on your every word. All right, guys, this is the second to last episode before a couple weeks winter break. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas for those who are listening as these episodes are released. Until next time. Mm -hmm.